I consider what we are about to do together. In just a couple of hours, we will be back to our normal lives, me at school and my father at his office. But the circle will be out here, waiting, ready to drive people crazy. <laughs> By the glowing green dial of my father's watch, the work takes almost two hours. We plant the iron stake in the ground and tie one end of the rope to the swivel ring. I hold the stake with both hands and steady it while my father stretches taut the rope and walks in a series of widening circles, sweeping down the corn stalks as he goes. The noise of the bending and snapping stalks seems bound to give us away, yet no one comes. I hear a dog bark and a new fear hits me. No one will ever see what we're creating here and the only people the circle will drive crazy will be my father and me waiting for it to be discovered. This week on Selected Shorts, the Secret Origins of Crop Circles. I'm Jane Kaczmarek, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction, read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. Sometimes legends make reality and become more useful than the facts. Salman Rushdie wrote this line in a magical realist novel, Midnight's Children. It's a recurring theme of modern life, and in this edition of Selected Shorts, we make like Rushdie, that is, our stories measure the distance between verifiable truths and received wisdom. Take summertime, for instance. Everybody says they love the beach, fireworks, and dining al fresco. But I gotta tell you something, I hate the beach. I like fireworks, and if I'm gonna eat outside, there cannot be any bugs. I, the beach just, you know, I think living in California, I've been there maybe twice my entire life. I don't like wind, I don't like the heat, I don't like salt water. And I hate not knowing where I can go to the bathroom. But maybe that's just me. So I'm really with the essayist, Samantha Irby, who also thinks everybody is nuts. Here's the very funny Retta performing Irby's rant, The Case for Remaining Indoors. Wouldn't you rather be dead than hot? I am 100% over people pretending that open-mouth breathing in 1,000% humidity while being burned to a crisp by the sun is the jam. I prefer winter, when everyone has to be bundled beyond recognition to survive, or fall, when you can wear something nice without sweating it sheer in the punishing heat. Too bad I can't afford to pack my one bag and move to the Arctic, because the minute I start seeing bare arms and booty shorts, my sad kicks in and my happy doesn't return until in September, when, thank goodness, I can cover it up with a scarf. It is a cloudless 72 degrees in Chicago today. The sun is blazing in the sky. I closed the blinds when I finally woke up around 1.30 in the afternoon. Birds are chirping sweetly in the streets. I shut the windows. And people are crowding the streets in droves, celebrating this long-awaited break in the dreary gray spring weather. I assume, like I said, I shut the goddamn windows and blinds. <laughs> I'm going to take a shower and order grocery delivery, then maybe stare at the wall until it's time to go back to bed. If I went outside, I could walk down the street to the beach, stroll along the lake path, and get bit by a dog, <laughs> suffer through an awkward conversation with someone who lives in the neighborhood, and who I would then be forced to avoid until the end of time. Watch children beating each other with sticks while enjoying the fresh air. <laughs> Soak up some vitamin D and also harmful UVA and UVB rays. Get the perfectly acceptable to wear again tomorrow clothes I'm wearing all sweaty and gross. On the flip side, 
In my apartment, I can eat the rest of this box of cereal, dry, by the fistful. Look at people outside without having to smell them or listen to their opinions. Organize my ketchups. Writing song lyrics from my easy listening band, Queasy Listening. Words like outdoor music festival are why I am so glad summer in Chicago lasts approximately seven minutes. One summer, I walked by these dirty hipsters at Division Fest dancing in a large gray puddle and thought miserably, I hope you guys catch something incurable. <laughs> I was instantly burning with hatred for these people, dancing with their mouths open in a shallow pool of urban toxic waste. And the band they were dancing to wasn't even that jamming. I hate summer because one, it's hot. Two, everyone feels the need to do everything outside. And while I would rather be dead than participate in any outdoor activity, barbecues or romantic walks or looking at trees or living, I really wish you and everyone else would do everything else in the privacy of your homes too. I never have to go outside again because one, my boyfriend, the television, is inside. <laughs> Man, I fucking love TV. And I don't mean educational programs on PBS or crackly documentaries about important historical figures. I mean, I know all the cast members of The Real Housewives of Atlanta, past and present, and all of their children, pets, and significant others by name. I once walked blindly past my own sister on a sparsely populated train platform in the middle of the afternoon on a Saturday. But I could tell you who won Survivor the last few seasons without even Googling it. Television has forever been my unwavering companion and trusted friend. Every bad day, every breakup, every inexplicable 2 a.m. awakening, television has been there for me through all of them. I would trade every deadly hornet sting and itchy eye causing spring bloom without hesitation for the warm glow of my Samsung for the rest of my life. Two, are there enough blazers in my closet? Years ago, I decided I was going to be a jacket person. I'm not sure that it was a conscious decision, like I didn't just wake up one day and throw out all my long sleeve shirts, but I remember finding this insanely well-cut cropped denim jacket with a military collar and cinched waist. And the first time I wore it, I didn't take it off the entire day. At some point the next morning, stumbling around hungover and bleary-eyed, trying to get my shit together for work, it dawned on me that I could just wear that jacket again. I already knew it looked good, and anyone paying close attention would just assume I'd changed the t-shirt I'd worn underneath. So why the fuck not? I put that jacket on every single day. If Michael Kors could wear the same uniform every day, why not me? Now I have all kinds of jackets, leather ones, tweed ones, twill ones, the works. And you would not believe how many pajama pants you can get away with wearing to nice places <laughs> if you just slap a sharply cut blazer on top of them. At home, I can gaze lovingly at my closet and organize my jackets by color, by material, by the likelihood they would ever see the outside world. I'm sitting in my crib right now, listening to this Gretchen Pilardo record from three years ago, ripping sheets of toilet paper off the roll I keep on my desk because buying boxes of Kleenex feels like a waste when allergy season is about to destroy my life anyway. And I'm wearing a jacket, a black, pleather motorcycle jacket I got for sale on ASOS that has a little fringe on it, but not so much that I look like I'm going to an Aerosmith audition later. 
That's the thing about being an inside person who enjoys the occasional wardrobe splurge. You got to be cool with modeling it for the cat <laughs> and hope the delivery dude from a part pizza company assumes you just got home from work and were so busy writing checks and taking important calls that you hadn't had time to shrug it off before opening the door. Even though you both know deep down that you haven't left the apartment all day and only put it on because it's a shame to let an $80 coat go unworn. Three, food just tastes better inside. White people love picnics. So much, in fact, that they'll stop just about anywhere to have one. Why? Everywhere you look, someone has turned a bus bench or statue or filthy curb into an outdoor cafe. You dudes just stop and bust out your wicker baskets anywhere, huh? I know my people love a summertime cookout as much as anyone, but we don't just set up a three-legged grill in the alley next to the dumpster as soon as the winter snow melts, you know, and throw our chicken on it. We organize, we plan. First of all, we need to know who is going to be responsible for the potato salad. You can't just let that one lady from work you invited to be nice bring hers. It has to be a known potato salad from a vetted and reliable source. I can't even commit to going to a white person's house for dinner in the summer unless we have specific plans to do something that requires four walls and a roof while I pretend to be picking at their homemade tabbouleh. Yeah. Because guaranteed, I am going to walk in the house and be greeted with, hey, let's eat this out in the patio. And by patio, they mean the little scrap of cement at the base of my back stairs that only holds one chair. So have fun balancing this flimsy paper plate on your knees while you sit on the bottom step. And good luck with the flies hovering around because we're right next to the trash. <laughs> LOL, fuck that. <laughs> Four, you can daydream about things in a catalog you are never going to buy. Without fail, I get the IKEA catalog every single year. Let me remind you that I currently live in a space that contains this many things, a full-sized bed, a television on top of a television stand, a stack of magazines next to the bed that I use to hold a small fan and my BiPAP machine because finding a bedside table was too much work, a desk that I ruined with a broken bottle of nail polish, a large air conditioner currently sitting on the floor beneath the window, a table my friend's dad made that I keep in the dining room to hold wine bottles and plants, a stainless steel shelving unit that serves as an open-air concept pantry, a dresser whose bottom two drawers I am terrified to open, a bookshelf I have inexplicably moved six motherfucking times, and one chair. There's other shit in there, uh, you know, laptop, house phone, I no longer remember the number two, prosperity candles I got from the occult bookstore. But they don't count since those are things that go on top of other things. Suffice it to say, I have no reason whatsoever to be comparing backsplashes. I have been a renter my entire life. My home improvement joy is firmly grounded in novelty items like matching clothes hangers and interesting dish towels, affordable splashes of color and beauty that can liven up this space crumbling at the corners and painted like a prison cell. But catalogs are a miracle because you can design your very own dream house with none of the risk or expense. 
I'm like a little girl with my post-it notes in red Sharpie. I want the farmhouse sink and this marble countertop and a butcher block island in the center of the kitchen, these brass sconces in the master bathroom, definitely some track lighting in the family room, and oh, wouldn't this leather sofa look amazing in the den? I could spend an entire weekend locked in a 500-square-foot studio apartment circling armoires in the Crate and Barrel catalog that will never see the inside of any place other than my brain. <laughs> I like to pull all of the Bed, Bath & Beyond coupons out of the Sunday paper and stick them in a drawer for the day I decide to stop living like a trash person and buy sheets with an impressive thread count. One of these days, I'm going to move to a place in which a footstool might not look out of place, and I'm going to need that 20% off, okay? <laughs> Five, your space, your rules. Now, this is assuming that you haven't made the fatal mistake of trying to be inside at some place other than the one in which you live. People who don't understand that my writing process consists of staring sullenly at my computer, waiting for the jokes to come, willing myself not to get up to re-examine the contents of the almost bare refrigerator I just took stock of 10 minutes ago, often ask if I like to write in coffee shops. I used to, especially before I caved and got a high-speed internet hookup in my casa. Sometimes I'd roll down to the heartland to pick out a bowl of vegan chili and soak up their internet. But my favorite bartender quit, and they took the black bean nachos off the menu. So, bye. <laughs> there are a handful of coffee shops in Edgewater that feel cozy and relaxing. But the problem with that is that I am never cozy or relaxed, even with headphones on. I could never get over the idea that someone was watching me, that they knew I had a deadline or a draft due, and instead of putting my head down and working, I'd spend the entire time glancing around, wondering what everyone else was working on. Defeated and deflated, after multiple days sulking home with my work undone, I finally called RCN to come connect whatever wires I needed to get the fastest possible mature lesbian porn on my phone. I could make my own tea. Better yet, I can smoke a bowl and drink an entire pitcher of crystal light and finish that butthole essay in my nicest house jacket and take as many breaks as I want, and no one is going to steal my seat when I get up for a cookie refill or cause me to break out in a sweat when my battery is at 7% and the nearest outlet is in use. I won't get sucked into watching a young man artfully arrange his latte and scone just so for the gram. No eavesdropping on conversations about bands I've never heard of and am too uncool to understand. No nervously asking an irritated barista what Sumatra means. Just me and the cat and the bags of Lipton I shoved in my pocket at work because buying an actual box of tea in real life feels like a ridiculous, unnecessary thing. <laughs> It's fucking perfect. BRB. Gotta go pee. That was Retta performing The Case for Remaining Indoors by Samantha Irby. I'm Jane Kaczmarek. Our next story is by the National Book Award finalist and short story writer, Rebecca Mackay. It considers the public perception of a more disturbing phenomenon. Terrifying acts of violence by radicalized individuals have become a regular occurrence around the globe. When these horrifying events take place, we often ask ourselves who would do such a thing? 
Mackay's thoughtful story tells us. This is actor and filmmaker John Cameron Mitchell performing everything we know about the bomber. The briefcase he used was not the black one shown in uh, phone footage. The black case belonged to Marion Cates, deceased, and contained two egg salad sandwiches. That the black case appeared so persistently on the news and on social media, despite being of no interest to investigators, delayed the apprehension of the bomber by as much as two days. We're told that in third grade, his English was lacking. We're told that he refused to smile for class pictures, but he was a happy child. He was. We're told he loved painting. We're told that Miss Mullins is too overwhelmed at this time to answer more questions. He was on the FBI's radar, and then he was not. He was someone's son, and then he was not. He had a girlfriend, then he did not. He had a beard, then he did not. His sister understood him, and then she did not. There's no question he acted alone. He suffered from plantar fasciitis, cluster headaches, a borderline attention disorder, and repeated sinus infections. His heart was broken five distinct times. That much is clear from the autopsy. He studied botany, specifically the sticky and miraculous unfurling of single grains of pollen into long strings that drilled down the length of the pistol into the ovary. His graduate work addressed the lipids involved in this reaction. His research was nearly complete. His finances were in order. He paid bills the day before the bombing, which leads us to wonder if he thought he'd get away with it, go home, need electricity, water, credit cards, or if some ingrained societal obedience overrode all that he knew of the future. His one indulgence was scarves. He spent more income proportionally on scarves than on entertainment. In 11 of the 16 photographs available to the public, he wears a silk scarf of one pale color or another, tucked expertly into the collar of his leather jacket, affected, perhaps, but not for a European, which he was, after all, even if he was also American, even if he was also a thousand other things, not the least of which was vain. We agree collectively that the amount of time we have devoted to studying his skull shape, lineage, Caffeine intake and psychiatric history is neither helpful nor tasteful. On his bookshelf, Rambo, Dostoevsky, Updike, Conrad, Nabokov, Murakami, Dickens, Proust, Mann. Much is made of the depth and diversity of his reading, but then much is also made of the absence of women from the shelves. The Stanford professor who has arranged access to the bomber's copious marginal notes plans, separate from his assistants in interpreting these notes for the interested government agency, to release his own analysis of the man's literary thinking. How long he will have to wait for clearance is naturally the issue. When the bomber was 11, he took a Hershey's bar from a pharmacy shelf and snuck it into the public restroom where he consumed it in three bites. Terrified of the incriminating wrapper, he folded it in half, fourths, eighths, sixteenths, but decided against the toilet which might clog. He put the wrapper in his mouth, chewed it like gum. When it was soft enough, he swallowed. Much is still uncertain, but on this one fact, we are clear. (laughs) According to his mother, he was framed. According to his mother, the laws of the universe are incompatible with her son, her son, her son, doing this. 
We wonder collectively why it's so important to us that she understand what we understand. Yes, he did this. He bought the ticket. He wrote the letter. The basement was full of chemicals despite our wish to spare her. Wouldn't it be better if she thinks it's the rest of us who have gone mad? We ask if she hasn't been through enough, but we need her to understand. The briefcase he used was a gift from his sister, something to replace the canvas bag he'd carried through his academic life. She was the one who identified a scrap of it, charred leather and a bit of a buckle. There are things we can assume. That he was terrified, that he almost wet his pants, that he rehearsed, that he ordered a good meal that morning but wasn't able to eat it, that he prayed, that he didn't look at the faces in the crowd that his own name, when he checked into the hospital, sounded to him like a death sentence, that he'd pictured some glorious future, some altered universe in which history would have been written by the victors among whom he'd be chief. That he couldn't sleep the night before, that maybe those are facts about us, about the way we would be. The bomber's ex-girlfriend is not ready to talk but her roommate has given certain details, the fight about the keys, the time he broke the girlfriend's wrist, the addiction to Indian food. The roommate starts most sentences with, if I'd known, we're happy to allow her this. He liked to solve puzzles. He liked to fix machines. When his third grade teacher, Miss Mullins, told him there was not enough time to talk about sharks, he slowed the mechanism of the classroom clock. Look, he said, I made the day longer. If he hadn't felt the need to watch the explosion, he'd never have fallen from the roof of the bank and would not have snapped his leg. Three days later, he wouldn't have stumbled, dazed and infected to the hospital. He would not, when he saw the nurse's eyes, when he realized the police were on their way, have barricaded himself, wouldn't have taken the hostage, wouldn't have demanded the suicidal drugs, wouldn't have shot himself when they were denied, or so we assume. The country where he was born is, is on the map, but only a, a detailed map. It, it has a flag, but not a flag we've seen. His country is smaller than Luxembourg, larger than Liechtenstein, with a surprising number of sheep. To be honest, we'd forgotten about this country. We aren't at all sure what he wanted. The night before his 23rd birthday, he sat in a mostly empty movie theater and watched Audrey Tattoo run through the streets of Paris, suitcase in hand. As a botanist, he hated that the wrong things were blooming on screen. This was meant to be August, but here were tulips <laughs> in the park. Each flower, to him, had a taste. He rarely tasted nectar, just a few curious times, the viscosity if not the flavor, reminded him of his girlfriend of afternoons on her small white bed. But he knew each flower smells so intimately, so clinically, that when these tulips appeared, he felt it on the back of his tongue. He admired the director's brazenness. He assumed it wasn't ignorance in deciding what flowers bloomed when. He admired men who molded the universe like plastic. After this thought, his popcorn lost its flavor. We've gleaned all this from the video surveillance. His mother stands on the porch and again and again says, why, till it doesn't sound like a word at all. It's, it's a different why from ours. We're not ready to accept this. 
He had a tooth pulled in the spring of 2012. He was allergic to strawberries. He excelled at tennis. There was no food in his refrigerator. He was dead before they could interrogate him. His blog has been erased. We plan to learn more. We plan to keep updated. We plan to look for patterns. We've obtained a new map with slightly different colors. We will repeat these facts till they sound like history. We'll repeat them till they sound like fate. That was John Cameron Mitchell reading Everything We Know About the Bomber by Rebecca Mackay. I'm Jane Kaczmarek, and when we come back, the secrets of crop circles will be revealed. Really? You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Jane Kaczmarek. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to selectedshorts.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please write and tell us what you think about today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. When you do, you'll get episodes of our spin-off podcast, Selected Shorts Too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for both shows on iTunes and hit subscribe. On this shorts program, our stories delve into legends and facts and the distance between the two. Our final tale is by Walter Kern. Kern is best known as the author of cinematic novels including Up in the Air and Thumbsucker. This short story feels like a movie, too. A father obsessed with capturing the public imagination is seen altogether differently in the private sphere. The actor reading this current story is a performer who has made us laugh and sometimes cry for over 40 years. This is The Hoaxer by Walter Kern, as read by Michael McKean. My father was a hoaxer. In his spare time and with no thought of profit, the way other men fish or build radios from kits, he perpetuated frauds against the public. He did his share for the popular phantoms, Bigfoots, extraterrestrials, ghosts, while promoting a number of minor phenomena that were, I like to think, closer to his heart. Some of these lesser-known entities, such as the Minnesota lionbird and a strange atmospheric condition known as burning snow, had a basis in folklore and merely required a plaster cast footprint or a blurry snapshot to refresh their legends. They were the easy ones. More difficult to foist upon the public were the myths and marvels dreamed up by my father himself. Monsters such as Howling Johnny, the mummified wolf boy of Glacier National Park, whose shrunken rodent-gnawed body was my father's crowning achievement. In the world of scientific fakery, a world more extensive than outsiders know, the man was an original. 
He was not impressed with ordinary oddities. Indeed, I like to believe that my father had high hopes for his deceptions and thought of himself as a teacher, though of what set of truths or values, I don't know. I do know what it was like to live with him and what it is like now without him. It's early, a couple of hours before dawn, time to drive out to a nearby cornfield and make it look like something landed there. <laughs> I am 13 years old, an eighth grader, and this is my first time. My father sits high behind the wheel of his four-wheel drive Ford pickup truck, steering with one finger, and I can tell by his locked-ahead gaze and unaccustomed silence that I am on probation. We pass dark farmhouses, flanked by looming silos, Bats dive and bank in our high beams. The cross breeze through the rolled-down windows smells of rain-soaked earth of night crawlers drowned by the thousands. I feel anxious, tired, and honored. My father woke me up this morning when he easily could have snuck out alone. Under the seat there, the thermos, he says. And I am quick to reach down and grab the bottle. Its cap, which I unscrew, is a cup. I fill it only halfway to prevent a spill and place it in my father's outstretched hand. The steam from the postum fogs his eyeglasses, and he sets the cup on the dash to let it cool. The glasses are dummies. I tried them on once. The lenses were plain glass. And my father's refusal to leave the house without them is just another trick. He has even developed certain tics, such as blinking when he puts the glasses on, or suddenly acting blind while wearing them and whipping them off to be polished on his shirt sleeve. My father is not a normal man. I've learned this. Here's how you're going to help me, he says, holding out the cup for more postum. Because of his blood pressure, he can't drink real coffee. I'll walk to the field and make the circle while you sit tight in the truck and stand guard. You can turn the radio on, but keep it low. Sound carries miles on a night like this. He raises the cup to his lips and blows. He knows I'm disappointed. He had promised when he woke me up that he would show me how to make the circles, how to fabricate a landing site. Guard duty is an insult, a jip. I've been waiting for this day for months, ever since the Saturday night that he led me into his workshop after dinner, shut the door so my mother couldn't hear, and took me into his confidence. He chose that night to reveal himself, I think, because he'd been fighting all weekend with my mother, and he wanted the companionship. The fight was the same one they were always having about my mother's demands for affection and for material things. So far as I knew, the argument had started well before I was born, which may have been why my parents didn't bother me. I'd heard the racket so often it became elemental, expected. In fact, the quarrels often made me sleepy, and I would wake up when the screaming stopped. My father was calming himself with a cigarette when he sat me down at the drafting desk in his tidy, fluorescent-lit workshop. He showed me an album of newspaper clippings dating back to the year I was born. The articles dealt with mysterious events that I, a straight-A science student, immediately knew to be made up. My father read some of the headlines aloud in an anchorman's phony baritone. Ogden boy scouts report strange lights. Grizzly on the Vegas Strip? He shut the album and asked me what I thought. Somebody was playing pranks, I said. There aren't any grizzly bears in Nevada. Correct, my father said. And he gave me a deep, long, squinting stare. Was it you who did those things? I said. He put a warm, heavy hand on my shoulder. It's a hobby, Travis. 
It started back in engineering school, me and some buddies goofing around. Believe me, I'm not the only one who does this. I nodded as if I already knew that. There are lots of us, my father said, spread out all over the country. We're professionals, mostly intelligent men. Does that make sense to you? I waited for him to make it make sense, but suddenly he seemed distant and anxious, caught up in his thoughts. He shut his eyes and reached under his glasses and pinched the bridge of his nose. I wondered if he was regretting his decision to let me in on his secret life. I hope not. I hadn't wanted to know about this stuff, but now I did. I needed to know about it all. Did you ever meet up? I said. Is this a club? We are a club, he said, opening his eyes, but not one that meets. Not meeting is the point. We'd rather pick up a newspaper, read about a Bigfoot track discovered in Wyoming, say, and realize another one of us is out there. It's our way of saying hello to one another, of sending smoke signals. I said I understood, and for the rest of the evening I asked no more questions. Just sat there with the album on my knee as my father disclosed true stories behind various clippings. The Ogden UFO scare, for example, was the result of panicky phone calls to several late-night disc jockeys. By changing his voice for each call and varying his descriptions of the spacecraft, my father had simulated other sightings throughout the four-state area and over the course of the following three nights. He said I was sick with the croup at the time and neither he nor my mother could sleep. Whenever she got up to quiet me, he would sneak down to the basement and monitor the reports of fresh sightings on a police band radio. By the second night, he said, the hoax had developed a life of its own. That sometimes happens. You forget you started it. But then you remember, and that's what makes it fun. <laughs> we turned a few more album pages, and afterward, my father made me swear to keep our conversation to myself. Not a word about the altered Polaroids that proved the existence of the Vegas grizzly. Not a breath about the St. Paul taxidermist who fashioned the lion bird remains my father had sold to an Iron Range museum. As I made my vow, I could hear my mother through the door, noisily clearing the dinner plates. I sensed that whomever else my father's jokes were on, they were mostly on her. Still, I made a promise. My father's odd pastime became our secret. Despite the wall, it immediately placed between me and everyone else in the world. And that's why on this morning, six months later, the morning of the crop circles, I will settle for nothing less than full and equal participation. But we don't need a guard, I say. Nobody's going to come by here. It's not even four o'clock yet. You don't know farmers' hours, my father said, pumping the brakes and stopping the truck. Ever wonder why it's country people who see all the UFOs? They're up so early, still half-dreaming when they do their chores. He backs the truck off the paved country road and onto a grassy two-track, proceeding for 20 or 30 yards until we are safe behind a clump of sumac. Wordlessly, we climb out of the cab and walk around to the back to unload our tools, a coil of rope and a long metal stake with a swivel eyelet. I consider what we are about to do together. In just a couple of hours, we will be back to our normal lives, me at school and my father at his office. But the circle will be out here, waiting, ready to drive people crazy. <laughs> By the glowing green dial of my father's watch, the work takes almost two hours. We plant the iron stake in the ground and tie one end of the rope to the swivel ring, I hold the stake with both hands and steady it while my father stretches taut the rope and walks in a series of widening circles, sweeping down the corn stalks as he goes. The noise of the bending and snapping stalks seems bound to give us away, yet no one comes. 
I hear a dog bark and a new fear hits me. No one will ever see what we're creating here, and the only people the circle will drive crazy will be my father and me, waiting for it to be discovered. The thought of this makes me feel lonesome, foolish, and as I watch my father sweep the corn down, I wonder what satisfaction there can be in duping people you will never meet and piling up secrets for the sake of it. Our family moved a lot in those days because my father was always quitting. It wasn't that he couldn't hold a job, but that he had no reason to. The moment he felt bored or unappreciated, he left and found another one. His field was computer programming back when that was new. And though he had trouble obtaining promotions because he hadn't finished engineering school, he never lacked for entry-level offers. For him, obtaining a new position was merely a matter of driving to a city, looking in the local yellow pages and making a few calls from a payphone. My mother and I would watch him from the truck, wiping circles in the steamed-up windows since it always seemed to be winter when we moved. The winter I was 14, four months after a startled crop duster discovered the St. Cloud saucer site and all the TV stations went out to film it, my father announced over his morning brand flakes that we will be moving to Rockford, Illinois as soon as we could pack up the truck. My mother rose from the table when he said this and walked as if in a trance to her bedroom. I heard the screech of wire clothes hangers being ripped from the bar in her closet, followed by the snapping suitcase latches. My father sipped from his third mug of postum and browsed through the latest issue of Popular Mechanics. She's sad, he said. That's natural in a woman. It's biological. They get attached to places through the smells. His gaze remained fixed on the magazine, whose cover showed plans for a do-it-yourself infrared burglar alarm. What about you, he said, turning a page. You up for Illinois? To show solidarity with my angry mother, I frowned and said, don't know. Though the truth was, I couldn't wait to leave St. Cloud. Ever since the uproar surrounding the circles of mystery, the place had become ridiculous to me, a city of hicks and fools. What's worse, my school year so far had been disastrous. My classmates had changed during summer vacation, growing sideburns, adopting baffling slang, forming new and strange alliances based on shared tastes in sneakers and haircuts. Being polite to teachers was out, and defiant public nose-picking was in. These new ways had caught me by surprise, and I knew I wouldn't be able to catch up. My only hope was a fresh start somewhere else, where no one remembered my hair in a crew cut, and I could claim that math had always bored me. Before you go pack your stuff, my father said, I want to tell you something. He closed his magazine. Travis, a man is just a human being. I know, I said. <laughs> I know you know. It's your mother who thinks differently. She thinks I control the universe. I listened. And I made her think that. I built myself up big, made her believe I had powers. I stood there. Women demand it, my father said. Then they punish you when they learn the truth. I'm sorry, I said. You ought to be. You're next. I was never quite comfortable with him after that. The one-story house we rented in Rockford had a partially finished basement. My father spent most of his evenings down there, assembling gizmos from popular mechanics and imagining schemes that I wanted no part of but had to hear about anyway. 
I began to dread eating dinner at home, knowing I might be invited downstairs the moment my mother stood up from the table. My father said she knew nothing of his hobby, that she thought of him as an ordinary tinkerer, and her willingness to leave me alone with him told me he was right. Once or twice a week, he would lead me down to his dungeon, promising to show me something fascinating. He was focused then on fake ancient artifacts. I remember handling a set of chisels, a dictionary of Aztec pictographs, some chunks of marble salvaged from old buildings. I remembered a long and manic riff concerning the fallibility of the carbon dating process. This notion that things have determinable ages, I remembered my father saying, is baloney. It's science's big lie. The only way to date a thing is to date a more familiar thing that's near it. And the only way to date that thing, of course, may I go upstairs now, Dad, and watch TV? There's nothing on. There is, though. There's a lot on. (laughs) I stopped going home after school. I hung out. My plan to revamp my image had succeeded, and I had joined a ninth-grade clique that centered on two cute girls who liked to smoke pot in the park by the river and discuss such things as telepathy and witchcraft and life on other planets. Both Carla and Jan were only daughters of single mothers who worked, meaning they could do anything they wanted, anytime. I pretended I was equally free, and sometimes I stayed out with them until 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Their interest in the supernatural made me feel protective toward them, as though my inside knowledge of the subject required me to ease them toward the truth. Flying saucers, I told them once, are usually just that, plates thrown in the air. So you think humans are the only life form in all the universe, Carla said. That's an arrogant view, Jan said. She was the pretty one, the one I liked. I'm saying they aren't UFOs, I said. There might be other life forms, moss or something, What about Bigfoot, Carla said. I mean, do you think everyone just lies? People make things up, I said. I can't believe you don't know that, Carla. Lay off my friend, said Jan. I'm sorry, Jan said. You're such a cynic, Travis. God. The girls got sick of me soon enough, so I spent my afternoons by myself yelling at older kids driving by in Firebirds, lobbing snowballs at dogs chained up in yards, spitting off freeway overpasses. When I got home, there would be food wrapped in tinfoil in the kitchen, and my mother would be either off at Red Cross or in her bedroom reading a harlequin. My father would be in the basement, too busy with his latest creation to notice my arrival. I would eat in front of the TV and fall asleep on the sofa with a show on. In March, our family moved again, first to Lincoln, Nebraska, for a month, where my father did not even bother to find work, because of his dangerously elevated blood pressure. Then he decided on Denver. When he announced this move, my mother phoned her parents in Florida and asked them to send her two plane tickets, one for her and one for me. The tickets arrived in a few days, and my father made my mother cash them in and then spend the money on truck repairs. We drove to Colorado in a blizzard, using four-wheel drive the whole way and playing car games like license plate Scrabble, I sat squeezed in tight between my parents, forming the link and keeping us a family. The thin red line down the middle of my body was all that I felt left of me. We arrived in downtown Denver at lunchtime. My father ushered us into a diner crowded with businessmen smoking cigarettes and told us to sit at the counter while he made a phone call. 
He motioned the waitress over and ordered two BLTs and two split pea soups and nothing for himself. On the napkin beside my mother, he laid two $100 bills. I remembered thinking the money was counterfeit, something my father had printed himself, and that we would go to prison if we used it. <laughs> As my father strode off toward the payphone mounted on the back wall of the restaurant, the collar of his jacket was turned up and his hands were thrust deep in his pockets. That seemed odd to me. I ate some soup, I watched our waitress swirl mayonnaise on toast, and laid down parallel strips of wrinkled bacon. I felt my mother's hand touch my hand. We're leaving, she said. Your father's gone, come on. We planned this so there wouldn't be a scene. She picked up the bills and rose from her stool. I turned and looked down the aisle. A man in a suit was talking on the payphone, covering one ear with his free hand. Next to the phone, I saw a door with a lit-up red exit sign over it. The door was open slightly, and I could see trapped cigarette smoke rushing out through the crack. Travis, please, my mother said. I saw she had the truck keys in her hand. They were on a new ring, a rabbit's foot. We're giving each other some time to think, she said. We'll probably get together again in a month with all these little problems ironed out and everyone just as happy as before. He's coming back, I said. He's coming back. Do you still love him, I said. I love him dearly. My mother could be a hoaxer too sometimes. About a year later, I went to see my father in Helena, Montana. My parents' divorce had gone through a few months earlier, the week I turned 16, and the judge had ruled that the summer was to be time with my father. After my grandparents' crowded condo in a buggy, polluted Florida, his trailer in the mountains was just what I needed. I felt like I could breathe again, and my acne began to clear up. My father, though, had deteriorated. He'd grown a black beard, which made his skin look paler. When he spoke, his words were run together or sleepily strung out. I noticed he was drinking real coffee now and forgetting to watch his salt. You're looking good, I told him my second day there. We were sitting in plaid nylon lawn chairs on his sloping home-built deck. Between us on a little metal table was a family-sized bag of barbecue potato chips that we sometimes reached into. Baloney, my father said. I'm eating worse, sleeping less, drinking more, and feeling shittier every day. I didn't know. I'm sorry. I threw away my life, my father said. I hated computers. They bored me stiff. Everyone thinks of computers as clever, but in fact, they're the definition of dumb. They aren't electronic minds at all. Imagine a person who all he can do is repeat what you tell him, not even twist things. Imagine spending 20 years with him. As we ate our snack and watched the sun go down, I wondered if my father had kept up with his strange pastime. All winter in Florida, I had scanned the newspapers, particularly the supermarket tabloids, looking for stories with Montana datelines, but no luck. All the tall tales seemed to come from other regions. There was a haunting in a Long Island mansion, sea monsters in the Finger Lakes, crucifix-shaped hailstones in Missouri, a pair of elderly lobstermen in Maine, claimed to have watched a group of gray whales spout in unison between a hovering mothership. America was seeing things, but my father appeared to have no part in it. Then he told me about Howling Johnny, and I realized my father had not retired. He had raised his sights. It was August, hot. We placed the bones and relics 
in a flour sack, closed the sack with baling twine, then stowed it in the trunk of my father's rusted cutlass. The metal fried my fingertips as I slammed the trunk lid. My father stood off to the side with pen and notepad, giving instructions and checking off all of our steps. He had on a wrinkled pink polo shirt, dark glasses, and a baseball cap from Popular Mechanics. I sensed that he thought he looked inconspicuous, but to me he looked absurd. Also profoundly, utterly fulfilled. Gasoline, he said. I filled the tank. Once we're inside Glacier Park, he said, repeating this point for the third or fourth time, we're on our way. They don't have service stations. That's why I filled the tank, I said. His lack of faith annoyed me. I'd been working hard to keep his confidence ever since the night in late July when he had spread a white bedsheet on the deck and carefully set out the Johnny remains and the other graveside relics. He showed me the bones out of jealousy, I think. He had been drinking bourbon during dinner and grilling me about my mother's boyfriend, a Coast Guard officer named Percy Finn. After ridiculing his name and the concept of the Coast Guard, my father asked me if Percy Finn had ever let me visit his cutter. I said yes, and my father's face changed color. He said, I'll bet that was interesting, and pressed me until I admitted that it had been. Then he rose on wobbly legs and disappeared into his trailer. A few minutes later, he came back out carrying the bundle. The remains themselves, an adolescent male skeleton purchased from a defunct museum, and some hair my father had shaved from his own head, were the least part of the Howling Johnny hoax, which was based, my father said, on an actual unsolved missing persons case. In 1939, the story went, on an actual unsolved missing persons case, a six-year-old boy named Johnny Hale, budding musical prodigy and only child of Thomas Earl Hale, a leading San Francisco banker, disappeared from his parents' lakeside campsite in Glacier National Park. A massive manhunt was launched immediately, but after weeks of intensive search, the teams of divers and bloodhound handlers and Native American trackers had failed to turn up the slightest clue to the child's fate. Park officials presumed the boy dead. Killed and Hale rejected this conclusion. Until his death in 1975, Hale Sr. had offered a standing reward of half a million dollars for information about the lost boy's whereabouts. The reward created a small but steady stream of Johnny sightings, Johnny lore, and even one or two Johnny imposters, but no satisfying explanation was ever found. My father intended to close the case. As we headed north on I-15, rolling cool Coke cans across our baking foreheads and listening to a Merle Haggard tape, we carried with us the makings of an American roadside legend. Far from being eaten by wild beasts, Johnny Hale, the world would soon discover, had become himself a beast, a hairy wild boy, a maker of crude stone tools and weapons, and yet, because of his musical upbringing, an artist as well, a kind of Stone Age Mozart. <laughs> Stashed in the rotting, hand-stitched deer-hide rucksack that would be unearthed beside the bones were rustic antler harmonicas, <laughs> crude flutes, and even a tiny lute-like instrument strung with braided elk gut. When my father first showed me this primitive orchestra, he bragged that he'd outdone himself, and I had to agree Johnny's instruments were works of genius, implausibly plausible. It was the closest my father had come to his ideal, to create something fantastic 
which actually might have happened. We stayed that night in a campground, just inside the park's east entrance. Neither of us slept. Howling Johnny was too much with us, and I kept seeing the moon-outlined image of his thrown-back head as he piped strange tunes across the high mountain valleys. His motives for choosing this savage, lonesome life would never be fully known, of course, but perhaps a partial explanation lay in the faded newspaper clipping my father had planted in Johnny's rucksack. The clipping, obtained from an actual old copy of the San Francisco Chronicle, was a review of little Johnny Hale's first public recital, noting his somewhat skittish fingering and oddly romantic choice of material. So apparently the six-year-old wonder could not take criticism and had fled to the Rocky Moraines of Glacier Park to work out his musical gifts in solitude. And you know why it's perfect, my father said, turning over in his sleeping bag and going up on one elbow to face me. The moment this thing gets discovered and reported on, people will know there's a master out there. It's better than Piltdown Man. <laughs> You're right, I said. People don't want to explain this thing. It's magical. We folded the tent around 2 a.m. and climbed in the cutlass and drove for an hour on the moonlit going to the sun road. We parked at a trailhead posted with a sign warning hikers of grizzly bears. We divided the Johnny remains between two knapsacks and walked for an hour straight uphill. I noticed my father getting short of breath and I offered to take his pack for him. I was surprised when he accepted. We climbed another hundred yards or so and he sat down on a rock and put his head down. I shined my flashlight on him. He looked awful with damp matted hair. Let's stop, I said. We'll do it here. My father shook his head. It has to be near the snow line, off the trail more. Also, we need a cliff he could have fallen from. It has to make a story. By this time, my father was shivering hard and his color had turned to sickly pink. He wrapped his arms around his chest and eyed me pathetically. His breathing was quick and fluttery, as if his lungs had turned to crinkly paper. I'll do it myself, I said. I won't, I won't be long. You sit tight and keep warm, okay? Don't move. I shrugged off my fleece-lined denim jacket and draped it over my father's shaking shoulders. I asked him if he was all right, and he nodded. Then I strapped on both knapsacks, took a breath, and went up the mountain to bury the bones. Five months later, my father died. The news of his stroke came as no surprise to me. During my last weeks in Montana and the lull that followed our trip to Glacier, my father had gone on a binge of strong black coffee, alcohol, and salt. When I'd begged him to take his blood pressure medicine, he'd cursed me like he didn't know me and said the pills had made him impotent, which had ruined his marriage and ruined his life. His bitterness and fury long pushed down, flew out in terrible rants and screaming fits, often directed at Percy Finn, who had become an obsession by then. I left for Florida five days earlier than planned, vowing not to return the following summer and sensing that perhaps I wouldn't have to. My mother and I did not attend the funeral, which was paid for by my father's company, a Helena data collection firm. He had gone back to computers after all, to the machines that had faithfully supported him. His boss sent us a snapshot of the urn containing my father's ashes, and he offered to send along the urn itself, but I told my mother I didn't want the thing. I had a better way to remember my father, a memory that was mine alone, hidden where the world couldn't touch it. 
When my father died, Howling Johnny had still not been uncovered, as I'd taken pains to make sure he never would be. I had simply buried him too deep. That was Michael McKean performing Walter Kern's The Hoaxer. I'm Jane Kaczmarek. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Coleman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space, 